Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's go. Romans chapter 5 is where we are and where we have been for several weeks. We're plodding through Romans, the great letter to the Roman church from the Apostle Paul. And this morning, where we left off last week and where we find ourselves this morning is verse 6 of Romans chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it to Romans 5. We're going to look at verses 6, 7, and 8. Romans, six, Romans 5 verse 6 in particular is one of the sweetest sentences in the whole Bible. And this morning, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you're a member or a regular here at Crosspoint, I hope that you hear nothing new this morning. In fact, I, hear, I, I pray that this morning would just be a, a reminder of the glorious, great news of what God has done through His Son to make a people for Himself. And if you are new to Crosspoint, maybe not a believer, just visiting for the first time today, I, I want to invite you into this leper colony. We are all suffering, have suffered, have been cured from the same dreaded disease. And although many of us that all of us that are trusting in Christ have been healed from it. We suffer from this symptom of our disease. It's, it's called spiritual amnesia, where we forget this great news. And we need to be reminded of it daily and weekly. And this morning, we're going to stare at the greatest news of all time what God has done to make a people for himself through his son, Jesus. So we're going to dive right in. Let me read verses 6, 7, and 8. And we're going to unpack these verses by looking at, I think, three truths, just three of the many truths that come from this great truth that we'll read in in verse 6. Let me read it. Romans 5, verses 6, 7, and 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died For the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, on this first Sunday of August, as is our custom, when we set aside the first Sunday to come and remember the cross, thank you for, in your providence, having us in this text, on this communion Sunday, where we, after this message, will come to the table and take the bread and drink the cup to remember what you have done to make a people for yourself through your Son. Lord, I pray that believers in this room would be stirred and amazed afresh at the good news of the cross. And I pray that my friends that are in this room today would, that might not be believing, would hear and see and savor and that you would give them a new heart and new eyes and that you would open 
their ears so that they can hear and believe in this good news. I pray that you do this all for the glory of your name and for the good of your people, for the salvation of all those that you are calling to yourself. I pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like every sermon, this is not rocket science, and I have three truths that I want to share with you that I think come out of this text, and so we're just going to dive right into it, and then after this, we're going to come to the Lord's table together, as is our custom, on the first Sunday of every month, and receive and remember and examine our lives in light of this great truth. The first truth that I see out of this text is It's so clear and so obvious and so simple but so profound, and it is this, that Christ's death was for, is for sinners. Christ died for the ungodly is what verse 6 says. Listen to what the gospel writer Mark records in in Mark chapter 2 and verse uh, 13. He says this, he, speaking of Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Springer read for us earlier out of Luke chapter 18 where, where there was this tax collector as opposed to this self-righteous Pharisee and this tax collector was beating his chest realizing that he was a sinner. And it's, it's hard for us in our modern society. I mean, some of us may have a little bit of a grudge against the IRS. Um, if, you're, if you don't, you, you probably aren't paying taxes yet. So when you... When you leave the nest and you have to actually be, you have to like adult, like in a verb sense, um, you, you will understand the frustration that we have with our tax system. But we don't necessarily think of IRS agents as like sinners. But the context here in, in the first century was that Levi, Matthew, was an ethnic Jew And God's people, the Jews, were under the domain. They were really under the the captivity of the Roman Empire at this time. They were a conquered people. And the reason that the tax collectors were collecting taxes was to fund the occupation of Israel by the Romans. And so here you have a Jewish ethnic person collecting taxes to continue the foreign occupation of God's people in their land by the Roman Empire. So he wasn't just an IRS agent, he was a a traitor. And in the New Testament, just the occupation of tax collector is, with it comes the connotation of traitor, sinner, the worst of the worst. And this is who Jesus is calling to himself. Verse 15, and as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And if we put that together with what Springer read for us earlier from Luke chapter 18, Jesus is not actually saying that there is a group of people who are righteous and they don't really need God and there's a group of people who are sinners and those are the ones that I came for. He's actually sort of in a sarcastic way saying that nobody's righteous except for those that they, there are those that may think they are but they're not truly righteous. I came for the people who are beating their breast realizing that they need God. And Jesus here is pictured by Paul as dying not for those that are good candidates for his grace, but who are ungodly. Not for those who have decided to make a change and are in the process of being good candidates for grace. But what's the word here in verse 6 and verse 8? In fact, I think it's a key word in this text. Still, while we were still weak, Another translation says, while we were powerless, while we were unable. Verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, not sinners who have decided to improve, but still sinners. And what has sin done to us? It has made us completely unable to do anything right in making ourselves right with God. And these are the type of people that Christ has come for. And if you are a Christian, this was you before Jesus came for you. And if you are not yet a Christian and you are wondering if there is some preparation that you need to make in and of yourself, the answer is no because you can't make that preparation because Jesus didn't come for the prepared or the righteous. He came for sinners. This is great and glorious and good news. And to believe anything else is to believe a false gospel. And when we understand this, I think it sheds light for us on just understanding sin, salvation, and even this very American concept and very false concept, I think, biblically, of free will. The Bible, I think, is very, very clear that in the garden, Adam and Eve's will, our first parents, by the way, we all descend from them, right? We all descend from Adam and Eve, our first parents. In fact, we're going to, at the second half of Romans chapter 5, when we get there, verses 12 through 21 is all built on this argument that we are all children of our first father, Adam, and we all inherited his dreaded disease of inherited sin. And this sin, although Adam and Eve were free to obey God, They lost that freedom in the garden, and as a result, they were excommunicated from God's presence. They were really put into spiritual bondage and slavery, and when a slave has a child, that child is born a slave. And likewise, all of us have been born in bondage. We are born in a spiritual prison, and salvation is God releasing us from this spiritual prison. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. He says, it says, He, speaking of God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
So salvation here is pictured is not on God waiting for us to improve ourselves, to decide to make a change, but it pictures us as his people locked in a prison, a place of darkness, a place that we could not get out of on our own, and God comes and frees us from that place, unlocks the prison doors, and leads us out and transfers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son. It's not that we broke out ourselves. It's that God did it for us. So in sin, which is the natural state of every human being, we are not free. We are enslaved. And salvation is the freeing of the will so that we might choose God. And Christ dies for the enslaved, for the sinner, for the unable. A few more things I want us to see before we move on to the next truth about Christ's death is that it was... It was what the theologians call, it was penal, meaning it was a penalty to be paid for our sins. Next week, we'll read verse 9. Let's just jump ahead and look at what verse 9 says in Romans 5. It says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from what? From the devil? From a less than optimal experience? No, we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, friends, that's really, really important. Our biggest problem is not a less than optimal life. Our biggest problem is not ultimately Satan, our enemy. Our biggest problem is a holy and righteous God who we all by our nature have offended. And the glorious good news of the gospel is that Jesus is meeting our greatest need by absorbing the wrath of God himself. That's what's happening on the death on the cross where Jesus died. And when we come around this table in just a minute and we take this bread and we drink this cup, we are celebrating the fact that the Son bore took, satisfied, extinguished the wrath of God that was against us. And he satisfied it and he removed it as far as the east is from the west. And he bore this penalty by taking our place on the cross. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And I don't think that's a promise for physical healing necessarily in this life, although God certainly does do that at times as a kind of drop of mercy, a foretaste of heaven. But I think ultimately our wounds are spiritual and Jesus heals us of those wounds by bearing the penalty that should have been ours. Listen to what Paul says in his letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake he, meaning God the Father, made him made him, meaning God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, do you, do, you, do you see this clear truth? Is that the Son 
is bearing the wrath of the Father, and all of this has been orchestrated by the triune God who is bringing about the very salvation that he has determined will take place. Why is this so important? Well, I think this is important because we instinctively think that we must do something to make ourselves right with God. There was this huge theological debate after the Reformation uh, back in the 1600s, and it was this idea called preparationism. And it was this thought that the sinner had to do something, had to be prepared in some way, that the person hearing the gospel for the first time and responding to it rightly had to in some way prepare themselves in order for them to be a candidate for God's grace. And it was, it was I think, it kind of came out of, uh, I think, what was an earnest desire for true righteousness, to have people actually obey God. But the mistake that it was unwittingly doing was it was putting obedience as a kind of requirement before salvation. But, but that's not the picture here. The picture is, is that while we were still sinners, while we were still weak, while we were still still ungodly, while we were completely unable, Christ died for us. And we see this pictured, I think, in John chapter 11, where Lazarus is physically dead. He's not doing anything to make himself more alive. And Jesus comes, and he makes Lazarus alive. And Lazarus, because of what Jesus has done for him, gets up from the grave. He didn't prepare. He didn't start getting himself ready for coming back to life. Jesus did it. And why is this all so important? It's because I think many of us that do believe this still deal with residual guilt. I think, I think many, if not most Christians, deal with this. In fact, we just sang a song, My Debt is Paid in Full. You know how there's something kind of, if there's something between you and a person and um, you don't want to bump into them in public, is anybody else emotionally complicated like me? <laughs> it lets you into the emotionally complicated life of a pastor. You know, sometimes people come and go for various levels of good reasons. And I'll maybe see them. And there's just kind of, I'll be in Publix down the aisle and I'll see a person that I had a difficult, you know, pastoral interaction with. I know you guys are going to like, oh, this guy's a wreck. You'll never come back again, but that's okay. <laughs> then this will be you and me in a couple weeks when I see you and you're... <laughs> And, and you know, you're like, ah, that guy. And you, you got to go up and, hey, man, how you doing? Good to see you. Yeah. But there's just, there's just something in you, you know what I mean? Am I the only really, like, emotionally weird person? And then you leave and you, like, have a conversation with yourself in the car, the things that you should have said. Anybody else do that? All right. There's all this like emotional collateral in our hearts because of the brokenness of this world in our own lives. And the good news of Christ, the perfect son of God who has enough righteousness to satisfy the wrath of a holy God for all those who would come to him is that his death satisfies and extinguishes and removes all guilt, all condemnation, which is why Paul can write later in Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. 
That means there's no awkwardness in the grocery store when it's us and God. There's no friction. There's no weirdness. There's no unsettled debts. Jesus died sufficiently, completely, satisfactorily for sinners. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. This beautiful quote on a sermon called Justification by Grace that he preached on April 5th. 1857, no doubt with an awesome beard. <laughs> now, actually, this was younger in his life, and there's pictures of Spurgeon as a young man that I have, and he didn't have a beard. And when you look at those pictures, you understand why he grew a beard, and so then he later, he had a beard. <laughs> Some people just look better with beards, that's all I'm saying. He said, listen to this. The whole of the punishment of his people was distilled into one cup, meaning the wrath of God that Jesus bore on the cross. Speaking of when Jesus said, let this cup pass from me, but he, he drank it on the cross. No mortal lip might give it so much as a solitary sip. When he, speaking of Jesus, put it to his own lips, it was so bitter, he well nigh spurned it. Let this cup pass from me. But his love for his people was so strong that he took the cup in both his hands and at one tremendous draft of love, he drank damnation dry for all his people. He drank it all. He endured all. He suffered all so that now forever there are no flames of hell for them, no racks of torment. They have no eternal woes. Christ hath suffered all they ought to have suffered and they must, they shall Go free. Christ died for sinners. The only thing we bring to the table, the only thing that makes us candidates for grace is sin. And Christ died for sinners. Secondly, this beautiful truth that I see in verse 6 is that Christ's death was planned. Look at verse 6 again. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I think implicit in this, and we see it throughout the rest of the Bible and the Old and New Testament, is that God is orchestrating redemption, in fact, has planned for redemption before the foundations of the earth. Listen to what Peter says on the day of Pentecost after the Holy Spirit falls on the church and he gets up and he preaches this sermon and thousands come to faith and God uses that sermon to draw people to him. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23 through 24, it says this, Peter now preaching, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So you see there that people are still responsible for their sin. It was these people who crucified and killed Jesus and all of our sin, in some sense, certainly played a role in that. But it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
Listen to what Paul writes in in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Notice what it says in verse 4, that he did all this before the foundation of the world. So, before God even created, this is so good, you have to see this. Before God even created a world that would fall, he's planning for the redemption of that fall. Which means that the fall did not, and by that I'm not talking about football season, you know that, right? Not not autumn. Sin. God planned for the fall of mankind even before it happened, which means it didn't sneak up on him. He planned the death of his son before the sin occurred that made that death necessary. And God is doing it for his glory. Why is this important? I, I think I come to this theme a lot. But it's, I think it's so important in the chaotic world that we live in. This is so important because it helps us see that God is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign even over the worst evil ever committed, the crucifixion of the Son of God. If he is over that, he is over everything. We have a God who is not surprised by the greatest travesty and sin of all time. If that's the case, friends, he's not surprised by any nook and cranny, any little detail that happens in our lives. He has done it and ordained it somehow for our good. Listen to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 46, God speaking to the nation of Israel in their rebellion and sin and distress, offering them a word of comfort and a reminder of his sovereign power over all things. Isaiah 46, verse 8, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end of from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east the man of my counsel from a far country I have spoken and I will bring it to pass I have purposed and I will do it God is not in heaven wringing his hands wondering whether America is going to return to him or elect the right person to be president or whether or not your boss is going to do this or whether God is in control and is superintending all of human history somehow in some mysterious way that we cannot fully understand this side of heaven for our good and his glory. Ephesians 1 verse 11, just one verse after where we left off in Ephesians 1. 
It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is orchestrating even the smallest details in our lives. Either all things means everything, even the little things in my life, even the things that we may be stressed about right now, or it means nothing at all. Let's land this thing in our lives. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 139, verse 16. He says, your eyes, Psalm 139, verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. That means that God knows the number of our days He knows everything that's included in them. He's sovereign over it. And if we are one of God's people for trusting in him, he is somehow, as Romans 8.28 says, working it out for our good. So just let's just let's just spend a little bit of time just thinking about that and applying that. We, we, We we have to go here on this. That means that everything that is... Think about the worst thing that you're facing right now or the thing that you're dreading most or the thing that you're most anxious of. And that somehow God, according to these verses, if you are a Christian, has planned it. He's never responsible. And this is a great mystery. We can never fully understand this. He's not responsible for sin. Remember in Acts 2, he blames the lawless men for the death of Christ. It's their fault. It's their sin. They're culpable. God's never the author of sin. But yet, in some mysterious way that we can't piece together in our finite minds, he has planned, ordained, brought it about. And he does it all for our good. So, so right now, like what, what are you anxious about, dear brother or sister? What are you fretting over? What are you losing sleep over? What, what scares you the most? What terrifies you? What breaks your heart? And according to these passages, God has worked it all according to the counsel of his will for our good. When I, I look, I, that's a hard truth. And I think there's a way to, to deliver it. I mean, we can't, you know, like I'm informed by Job's friends in Job chapter 1. And Job loses everything. Great tragedy. And what does it say his friends do? In Job chapter 1, it says that they sat with him for a week and didn't say a word. So these, these truths are hard. You know that kind of that Christian that sort of is like a dripping faucet? There's just... They don't quite know when the right time, like that Kenny Rogers song, you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them, (laughs) know when to walk away and know when to run. Sometimes you just got to shut your mouth and be with people. You know, somebody goes through some great tragedy. Well, brother, God's sovereign. Yeah, and you're going to miss a couple teeth if you say that again because life is hard right now. I'm going to punch you in the face. And God will be sovereign over your dental visit. (laughs) No, I'm, don't, I'm, not, I'm just saying sometimes that's how we feel. I'm not saying. <laughs> so this isn't like, what I'm, what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is let's recognize that this is a mysterious truth. It's very difficult to, it's very difficult because the situations of the people in this church I know are very difficult. There's, 
Like it just sometimes it, like it feels like it comes in waves, just the life of a congregation. And it feels like this summer, like these past few months have just been wave after wave of distress and difficult circumstances that many people in this room are going through. And, and this truth is for those situations that God somehow is working it all together. Even the worst of situations, somehow God is behind it all for our good and his glory. And friends, to even behold this truth and to see it means that we have to have a good understanding of what life truly is. It's not just these 80 years. It is eternity. And God has not saved us just so the remainder of our lives here on this earth might go well, but so that for his sovereign purposes, he would use whatever means to bring glory to his name and joy to our souls for eternity. And for some of us, according to God's good and gracious plan, that joy may be brought about by the means of great difficulty here on this earth. And friends, if that is the case, then there will come a day when we will see, no matter what we've been through, that we will agree with God's word that it all was worth it. It was all worth it. Because this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That's why these prosperity gospel preachers are such liars because they don't preach prosperity enough. They sh- they they sh- they clamp down prosperity into just this life when prosperity was never meant to be here and now it's forever and it's far better than any Cadillac or mansion or financial gain. It's forever and ever and ever and it's joy increasing forever. Truth number three, and we end on this before we come to the Lord's table, is that Christ's death was effective. It didn't just make salvation possible. It actually accomplished it. It actually brought about our salvation. Listen to what Jesus says in in John chapter 6. This is encouraging words. John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them in this long discourse in John 6, which would be a wonderful chapter to read later on today in its entirety, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Friends, there's more assurance and glory in verse 37 than we, we can even know. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, no one. I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. 
friends, Christ's death doesn't just make our salvation possible. He actually accomplishes it. He breaks into the prison of our sin. He flings open the prison door. And he leads the captive out of captivity and makes him his. Why is this important? Because we can stand on the sure foundation that he will lose none of his people. Nothing will snatch us if we are trusting in him out of his hand. Donald Barnhouse was a a great preacher in Philadelphia back in the early 1900s, a Presbyterian preacher, and he was famous for this illustration on the work of Christ and salvation, and he said, picture two bridges. Sometimes we think of this truth about how Christ's death is effective for those whom he has saved, and it actually accomplishes, it, it brings about it, it, it is particular, it's, it's for those that the Father has given him, and sometimes maybe we instinctively think, oh, well, that seems sort of limiting in some way, what, what's going on there? That's, that's more sovereignty than I want to ascribe to God. But this is what Barnhouse said in this beautiful picture of two bridges. And he said, think of these two bridges over a great sea or a great canyon. And one bridge is wide and it's constructed to about halfway out over the canyon. And the other bridge is narrow, but it goes all the way across. That's what Christ has done on the cross. He hasn't just died. This is such good news, friends, because remember, we are sinners. What can we do? We're in a prison. Christ hasn't just died. He hasn't just whispered to us through the prison window, hey, if you will start acting better, then maybe you can work yourself. You'll get on probation, and then kind of you can come out. No, Christ has broken in and rescued us. And he's built a bridge all the way back to the Father. Now, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will actually be saved. And nothing will snatch them out of his hand. They'll be his forever. And when rightly understood and rightly received, that does not produce in us a kind of spiritual laziness that allows us to fall back into sin, that puts steel in our spine, because that love, that type of love, that type of work on our behalf becomes so compelling, so beautiful, so irresistible, so lovely that it melts our stubborn hearts and we are overpowered, we are enthralled with, we are overtaken by the love of God and we want, our hearts are changed and now our desires are changed and we want to obey him in ever increasing manner and that's the Christian life. Not perfect, but that's called sanctification. And when we see the gospel afresh, we see that. We end with this. Look at verse 8. This, this verse is, or verse 7, which is a, 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 such a, an interesting picture. Okay, so we've been dwelling really on verses 6 and 8, that while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. And I think verse 8 is essentially saying the same thing, that God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us. He's doing this out of love. It's not just a, a truth transaction. It's, it's a love rescue. And then it seems like just kind of like a thought bubble, just sort of a, a, 
a thought that Paul has here to sort of put it in context. In the middle of these two sentences, he says in verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And I don't think there's a real contrast there between righteous and good. I don't think he's like ratcheting it up at all. He's just saying that, hey, we can sort of philosophically see how somebody might want to lay down their life for a really good person. Think about somebody that you love. Think about like, you know, a love song on the radio. You know, I'll die for you, baby, right? <laughs> no, no, I'm, my singing career was ended last week with Jesus Loves Me. I'm no more of that. I... <laughs> but think about, we all understand this concept about maybe a really important or really noble person. And Paul is saying, you know, I think we can all philosophically understand how not everybody, but, but, but maybe, scarcely, somebody might, for some reason of familial love or maybe some reason of, you know, some great chivalry or whatever, I can see how somebody might die or lay down their life for that person. But God, verse 8, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. In other words, nothing lovely in us while we were still sinners. And in that word sinners is every category of human debauchery. So not just people that, you know, have kind of had problems with their temper or, you know, sometimes I get a little angry or sometimes, you know, I don't do the right thing or whatever. Not, not just kind of these respectable things that we sort of, but for sinners, for all sinners, for whosoever, for the wicked, for the tax collector, for the murderer, for the pedophile, for anybody. Think of this. Think about a man taking a bullet for a really noble person. And we would all say, oh, I, I get that. But think about the worst ISIS terrorist on trial before a firing squad, righteously condemned for their sin. And then think about somebody stepping in front of that punishment and taking it for them. Friends, the salvation of any person in this room is no less than that. And when we come to this table this morning, it's that type of love that God has shown for you if you're a Christian. Two final things. If you're a believer in Jesus, this should cause you to worship. This should cause us to respond in humility. It should cause us to love one another. It should cause us to be refreshed in the beauty of our salvation. And if you are not yet a believer in Jesus, I'm not giving you a formula. I'm not giving you three steps. I'm, not, I'm, not saying, I'm just saying, do, do you see this? Do you see how beautiful this is? Do you see this? If you see this, 
I believe if you're hearing this and if it's stirring your heart, I believe that is an indicator that God is breaking into the prison, prison of your sin, breaking into the captivity of your inability and is calling you to come out and fall in love with Jesus who died for people just like you. And you need to get up and follow Jesus. And that's called believing. Believing in Him. Let's pray. Ushers, if you'd come and get ready to serve us. Lord, as we come to this table, I pray that this truth would be so clear in our minds. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we we are to come to this table and we are to examine ourselves. For the Christian, that examination is not us saying, okay, these are the three or four things that I've done good this week that would commend me to God, that would make me acceptable this month for communion. That, that's, that's not it at all. The examination is to be reacquainted with our need for your sovereign grace. May we look at ourselves and our own hearts and may it cause us to be refreshed in our need for grace. The fact that Jesus died for us. Sinners. Not decent people, not moral people, but sinners. God, would you do that for my brothers and sisters in this room? And as we come to this table... May we be emboldened afresh in your love for us. And for my friends that don't know you, Lord, as we come around this table, I pray, Lord, that they would see Jesus. And let me speak to you, dear friend. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you shouldn't come to this table, not because we're trying to expose you or to single you out, but because we don't want you to confess something that you don't yet believe. To come to this table means that you're believing in Jesus, that you're trusting in Him. If you're a Christian, you're welcome to come to this table. But actually, one of the most loving things we can do for you is not make you think that you're okay with God merely because you're doing some religious act, but by clearly showing you that this is what it means to be a Christian. And so if you're not trusting in Jesus, you shouldn't come to this table. But you should turn from your sin and trust in him and put all of your hope in him. And then we will talk to you and speak to you about what it means to be a Christian. And then we welcome you to this table. And we do this every first Sunday of every month. But Lord, now as we turn our attention, would you help us, would you stir in our hearts an affection for Jesus? And would we worship you more rightly? And would you save many in this room who do not know you? And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.